This week's Acquirers podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Validia. Validia runs quantitative stock selection models using strategies based on academic papers and books with long-term track records of success. You may recognize Validia since two of its founders, Jack Forehand and Justin Carboneau, both good friends of mine, have appeared as guests on the podcast. With value stocks showing signs of turning around, Validia offers more than 10 systematic value models backed by long-term research, including strategies based on Joseph Piotrowski's F-score, Ben Graham's defensive investor from The Intelligent Investor, Joel Greenblatt's Magic Formula, The Value Composite from Jim O'Shaughnessy's What Works on Wall Street, and many others. Investors can access these strategies through concentrated 10 and 20 stock model portfolios or see how stocks rank based on each model's specific investment criteria. Through the end of March, Validia is offering 33% off an annual subscription to both its standard and professional product listeners of the Acquirers podcast. To find out more about Validia or to take a free trial, you can go to validia.com forward slash Toby. Again, that's V-A-L-I-D-E-A.com forward slash Toby. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Lawrence Cunningham. He's been a longtime observer and a student of Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. We'll be talking about his brand new book, Quality Shareholders and his quality shareholder initiative. It's an absolutely fascinating discussion. I learned a lot. It's coming up right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Well, I just... I just wanted to say what an absolute pleasure it is to be speaking to you. First of all, um, I've been a long time fan of yours because I, I've got the I've got the original book uh, that that you wrote, uh, that you, the collation of uh, Buffett's F- essays. This one is from 1997. Um, so you've had a very long term interest in Buffett, and now you've got a new book called uh, Quality Shareholders. So can you just for for folks who are not familiar with that term. What, how, how do you define a quality shareholder and what's the relationship to Buffett? Well, it's a close relationship because I got the term from Buffett. He wrote in his 1978 letter that his goal at Berkshire shareholder, at Berkshire Hathaway, was to attract the highest density of quality shareholders. He called them high quality shareholders. I dropped the word high. And then he defined them as long-term and concentrate. He wanted people who were going to hold forever and who were interested in the business and who would focus on the economics of the investments and acquisitions and the uh, analytics of his own philosophy. Uh, so he didn't want short-term people and he didn't want people who, who bought everything indiscriminately. And so that, that's the where, it's where the phrase come from. The connection is Thanks for saying. I, I've been studying Warren and Berkshire for a long time, 25 years or so. I've written a lot. I've just I discover more and more things every year. And the most important discovery of the past five was that Warren's success in attracting that quality shareholder base was an important reason for Berkshire's prosperity. Uh, he, there are a lot of factors that go into Warren and Ber- Berkshire, his, his intelligence, his patience, his discipline. We, we can get into all those. 
But one indispensable factor was his recruitment of that high quality shareholder base, people who were patient, they've held for that whole time and who were focused on Berkshire. So that's my most recent discovery. And I think it's, I think maybe the most important one. Yeah, I love the I love the idea. But what, what does what does having I think Berkshire is, is two things. Berkshire, I think, tries to be a quality shareholder, and Berkshire also tries to attract quality shareholders. So let's let's deal with the second part first. What what advantage does it bring to a company to have quality shareholders on the on the uh, register? There are quite a number of them. The most obvious is the horizon. It gives managers a runway to execute on strategy. They don't need to deliver every quarter or every year. They do have to eventually deliver. This isn't a license for lethargy forever, but they have some runway to develop that product, search for that market, find that acquisition, execute on the strategy. And and that's uh, not a luxury many CEOs have, but I think most uh, would welcome. The second thing is it, it promotes a degree of rationality in the stock price. Uh, the volatility is, is usually a product of short-term transient traders doing arbitrage things, making trades that really are about value that has already been created rather than investments in the future of value creation. Uh, and then when that volatility spreads, even the indexers need to buy and sell. And so you, you get wider swoons and swings just greater departures between or wedges between the business value and the stock price at any given time. The more quality shareholders a company has at its base, the greater the leavening effect they have. There's less volatility. There's less trading for exploiting past value and more investment in patient value creation. So that's useful in a couple, I mean, what I've said so far might sound theoretical. It's, it's practically relevant for the CEO who wants to use stock to make an acquisition. Uh, that, that currency is worth the most when it's most closely priced at value. If it's highly inflated, paying, uh, especially if the seller is going to join you or the seller's owners are going, employees are going to join you, there will be recriminations later if you've, you've paid an inflated stock. And obviously, if you're paying for an acquisition with undervalued stock, you're destroying capital for your shareholders. So having a fairly valued stock is extremely advantageous for acquisitions. Likewise, it's advantageous for paying employees. If, if stock compensation is any important part of your pay package, or, or indeed, if you're trying to develop an owner culture, so employees buy stock, either just by encouragement or, or through some uh, bonus mechanisms, uh, the best stock is the one that's that's fairly priced. It, it, you're not being paid in an inflated or deflated currency. Um, so uh, the, the, I can go on. Those are two big advantages. I'll, I'll mention a third, just uh, since managers might be listening. <laughs> but they, these these are constructive, engaged shareholders. These are not sycophants or um, or toadies or you know they 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 listen they pay attention and if you need them they'll talk to you and be constructive about it and so it's nice to have i call it a brain trust a ceo will, will very often like to know what it's most what's his or her most intelligent shareholders think and if you've got a um, a, a base a steady base a significant number of meaningful long-term holders 
they're your go-to people. You can talk to them. Heck, you can put them on your board of directors. Some of the best quality companies have done that, including Berkshire Hathaway. Sandy Gottesman is the most obvious. Tom Murphy is another. Um, and so, and, and the related point then is that when a short-term activist uh, argues for a new strategic direction, you know, so, sometimes they're, they're right. But when, it, when the activist is overzealous and unduly short-term, the CEO with a base of long-term focus shareholders can go to them and say, do, do you agree? what they're trying to do here and tell me if you do we'll, we'll change course but if you don't will you help me persuade them that this is not the target they should hit and and that has been a i've got a article coming out or it just came out i got an article recently out in market watch explaining that use of of quality shareholders so those are those are three big reasons and, and, and the book identifies another half dozen and uh there's almost no downside <laughs> What, what was the what was the market watch article? What was the example that you gave in that? I, I gave a, a, a quite a few different examples, and the inspiration was uh, there's a new research article by some professors I know called Validation Capital, and they they observed in the past bunch of years, companies have identified block holders who have validated managers' strategic direction in a way that warded off uh, activists. Uh, holders. So I, I took from, I said, oh, well, that's interesting because, and this came, so this came out um, two weeks ago. To, I don't know when this will air, but I would say around February 20th or 15th, the article came out. It's called Validation Capital. And, and that inspired me to look back and think, you know, in the 1980s, Warren Buffett was famous for, among other things, being a white squire. That was a phrase during the battle, the takeover battles of that era, when a company would secure a large block holder who would be faithful, uh, supportive, not a sycophant, but just who would, who would listen and ideally understand management's view and deter hostile bids. So Warren bought large stakes in, in convertible preferred stock of five or six different companies, Gillette, Solomon, Champion, US Air, where he was aligned with the prevailing strategic direction. And they, they were aware that there were uh, hostile bidders prowling. And, and so he served a defensive purpose. And so what I took from this validation capital is, I, you know what? There are a lot of quality shareholders today who provide a similar uh, validation. And uh, the best example I had, uh, I've got a bunch of them in that, in that column and they're in the book too was where about three years ago, a company, a chemical company, Ashland Global, was targeted by a relatively small activist, but, but they can be fierce even as small. I think it was called Cruiser Capital. Uh, I, I think that was the one. Uh, and, uh, and the board got the, the letter, the proposal, and they, they didn't think it sounded right. And so they called their long-term concentrated shareholders and they had a bunch of them. And the most, the, the largest, I guess, and longest was Newberger Berman, which is widely known to be a, a stock picker and a buy and hold type of firm and, and ran the proposal by them. And, and Newberger said, no, we agree with you. And they contacted a few other long-term focus shareholders and, and asked them the same question. And then they all agreed that this is not a good strategy. So the board was able to tell the, the bidder, the 
the insurgent, good luck because you know our, our primary shareholder base is, base is is not interested. And the fellow went quietly away. And uh, I give a couple another good example is uh, Ren Ray um, Renaissance Reinsurance, which is a Bermuda-based insurance company listed, I think, in the New York Stock Exchange received a, an overture. And it, it happened that at the time it was negotiating for an additional issuance of, of common stock to State Farm Insurance, also a, a revered quality shareholder. Most of its portfolio is, is long-term and, and concentrated. And they had a 5% stake in Ren Ray and they were negotiating for more. And they upped their stake, they doubled their stake. So all of a sudden State Farm owns 10% and they were quite supportive of the existing strategy. Renway was also in the middle of negotiating the acquisition of a Japanese insurance company called Tokyo Marine. They had been planning to pay in cash, but when this uh, uh, insurgent hit, they said, well, why don't we pay in stock? <laughs> you'll, you'll become a 5% or I forget the figure, meaningful holder. Uh, and they had had a long-term relationship with Tokyo Marine. They knew they would be the kind of uh, long-term focused shareholder uh, that State Farm had been and so on. So all of a sudden they had 15% and two uh, holders and, and they had a few others like that. And they were able to go back to the bidder and say, we, 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 we don't share your view and moreover, lots of the shareholders don't either. Uh, and so, you know, I, it's, it, gives, it gives managers leverage. Just, you know, that's the, I guess the, <laughs> the third advantage to, to a company and, and to a board, an incumbent board that um, especially in today's environment where activists have very loud megaphones, they have amplified voice, uh, they've got a you know, well-developed professional ecosystem of advisors, lawyers, and bankers, and funders, and proxy advisors, and, and their own shops have very talented uh, players, repeat players in this game. And so if, if, if you are targeted, um, it, it helps to have uh, shareholders who, who, who you, you can talk to, who will listen to you. Uh, many indexers are unavailable a lot of the time. Uh, and, and to, again, they're not sycophants. The Newberger Berman isn't going to just jump because some, because some board says so. But they will at least be a, uh, a, a sympathetic ear and, and maybe, maybe a strong partner in supporting uh, the board and management's case. Berkshire's had a run over the last 10 or 15 years where the stock price has underperformed a little bit and it's attracted some criticism and it has had several activists appear at meetings and try and ask various questions. I don't think there was any ever any suggestion that um, they were going to be able to achieve anything because Buffett controls it and there are lots of other shareholders who quality shareholders who've been there for a very long time you only need to go to a, a shareholder meeting and everybody will tell the first thing they'll tell you is how long they've held their shares so certainly people aren't trading it but doesn't that sort of seem to indicate that even with uh that kind of shareholder base you can see um you know compression in the in the in the price to the underlying value and it doesn't seem to insulate you from criticism you, you, you still seem to face activists so how do you how do you square those two ideas yeah there, there there's no guarantee and, and certainly you know a, a persistently underperforming company may need to be shaken up i think there's a role for activism i think though a lot of the activists uh, uh 
Loeb, uh, Ackman, um, you know, even Car- you know, Carl Icahn, some of the some of the tougher fighters in there, they they have added value and 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 helped change direction at, at a lot of companies. So I'm 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 not indeed. Um, activist investors can be quality shareholders. Bill Ackman ha- and and Loeb. Uh, uh, they very often have very long holding periods and 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 quite concentrated portfolios. So th- these are the opposite of indexers and transients. Uh, the, 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 there is a, a different category, or, or some of those those guys can sometimes occupy what looks to me like a much more short-term uh, strategy, or just get overzealous in something where they 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 cling to a strategy idea that actually doesn't make sense, and, and they're just you know, suffer from ordinary behavioral biases. And it's that overzealous cohort that I worry about and for whom I think a cohort of quality shareholders can be particularly helpful. But a persistently underperforming company uh, has a problem and, and needs to change. I think in the case of Berkshire and, and, and Buffett, I, you know, I think their run is um, spectacular, so spectacular for decade upon decade that when you look at the past 10, you say, well, that's not so spectacular anymore. Uh, or even the prior 10 is nothing like what it was in the 70s or 80s. And there's a couple of reasons. One is obviously they get bigger and bigger. It's harder to outperform. It's harder to find opportunities to allocate 30 or 40, $50 billion at a time. We've only found a couple. So that's that's a big problem, and then you also end up needing to uh, invest in businesses that require capital, and so you're sort of against the contemporary curve a little bit. You know, buying a railway, buying energy businesses um, when when most operations are moving to intangible assets, you're you're bulking up. So I think it's a victim of its own success in some ways. That said, it's 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 not as if it is hemorrhaging cash. Uh, it's accumulating abundant amounts of it, uh, and and managing to perform at least as well as the index. So uh, you know I'm I, I now on the on the agitators. There there have always been agitators at Berkshire for for 30, 40 years. Uh, one cohort argued that the company must pay a dividend. Uh, it hasn't paid one since nineteen sixty eight or seventy two, whenever it was. Uh, you know, Warren's joking on that one. Uh, he said, uh, "I must during that board meeting, I must have gone out to the bathroom when they when they passed that resolution." But um, now, and we're talking incidentally the Friday before the Saturday when the letter comes out, and there, there is some rumor and mumbling and so on about, well, maybe he's going to finally announce a dividend. I we'll see. I, I, the record uh, suggests he's not, uh, and he's got 130 or 40 or 50 billion. I don't know what it is. So, but for 30 years, a cohort is agitated to pay a dividend. They don't like that strategy. And what he's done on two occasions is take a poll of the shareholders, the non-Buffett shareholders, and an overwhelming majority of that cohort uh, said, no, please keep the funds, please, please reinvest them. And, and they seem still to be happy with that, even though they're reinvesting them in treasuries at, at, at the moment. Uh, the more recent agitation in the past dozen years has been the bad wagon against conglomerates. The argument that you've got 80 different businesses in every artery of commerce and manufacturing. You can't possibly understand all those things. They can't possibly be adding value synergies. Uh, you really should start busting up, selling them off. And the answer is manifold, but the first answer is uh, there, there are extraordinary gains, synergistic gains from being inside the Berkshire umbrella. Uh, vendors pitch 
their products to Berkshire subsidiaries at a huge discount. IBM has has cultivated their data process, their 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 um, uh, financial accounting systems and, and and data analytics, and they give individual subs a discount. Uh, and and there are lots of other vendors who who do that. Moreover. The commitment to permanence that Berkshire has always made, that is, we don't bust up the company. We don't sell off divisions, so long as they're generating some cash and don't have any labor unrest. We, we've had a couple of sales. We sold off the newspaper businesses because they're hemorrhaging cash, sold a small insurance company because it was a, it was a, it was um, cannibalistic. We, we, two, two Berkshire subsidiaries in the same business didn't make sense really own them both and there was no way to combine them. So he, he sold a couple, but the main idea is that when you sell to Berkshire, you've got a permanent home. And so long as you're doing okay, we're not gonna sell you. That has appealed to a lot of businesses seeking uh, a um, that kind of commitment, that kind of permanence. Family businesses that wanna uh, maintain that legacy, entrepreneurs who, who, who want the the runway and the, the ability, the agility to do their do their thing, and, and that has added significant value to Berkshire. So, and I, I think that the policy remains important, even though we haven't made a lot of acquisitions in the last five or eight years. The ones, the ones that have been made, uh, have 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 I think been helped by that commitment. I mean, when I did research for an earlier book, I interviewed a lot of the selling families, and so many of them said that we took a lower price from Berkshire compared to rival bids or or market. A fair value uh, because we put a, a a price we put an, a, an, a we put a, a a quantity on that uh, intangible commitment. So it's it's saved Berkshire. It's been an important part of the value proposition of Berkshire. And so if you said, hey, you know what? Let's just start selling things off. I, that would be the end of. There'd be no. It's it would be the end of the road. And, and maybe someday that you'll, you'll be at the end of the road, but I don't think we're near there yet. I'm glad you raised some of the activists earlier because I think that there's, there's been an evolution in activism or maybe it's the activists who survived have, have tended to become a little bit more engaged, perhaps they're more engaged shareholders than the activists that we saw in the early 2000s or the, the corporate raiders from the 80s. And I'd include in that list that you gave before uh, Starboard and, and Value Act uh, I'm not sure whether they're continuing on anymore, but but Value Act was certainly like that, where there were very long-term shareholders, which is in total contradistinction to the way that they're sort of perceived as being very short-term shareholders. And, and in for a quick pop, they tend to hold and seek to make operational changes. You talk a little bit about engagement as shareholders. Do you can quality shareholders be engaged shareholders who can affect change or is that not their role? No, oh, they, they sometimes do. And you're absolutely right on that. You know, Dan Loeb is, is particularly good at engaging and, and companies with whom with which he's engaged have engaged in return. A couple of years ago, he signaled to Microsoft that, that he had some ideas. <laughs> and they responded by putting him on the board or, or putting, you know, Inviting him in, and I, I think they got the designee of, of, of his. And so um, the activists are uh, many of them anyway. Are, are uh, see that it's much more valuable to everybody to, to engage than to fight, and and plenty of boards are uh, appreciate that that too. So I, I do think it's um, uh, it, it, it's a 
it's possible and it's, it's favorable. Uh, moral within the second part of your question, within the the non the traditionally non-activist quality shareholder community, there certainly are times when a a long-term focused shareholder is frustrated with strategic direction or a particular major decision and tries the traditional routes of, of quiet diplomacy and cajoling the, the CEO or, or working with the CFO or calling a board member or something like that, but still don't get anywhere. And in some cases, you the old-fashioned thing to do was to sell. They used to call that the Wall Street rule. Disaffected shareholders can simply sell their stock and move on. Uh, but for some quality shareholders in particular, the, the stakes are so high, the positions that they hold are so high that un unwinding them would take a significant period of time uh, and maybe even some cost. And so that's not a realistic option. I, I give an example in, in the book of, um, of uh, um, Methanex, a, um, a, a Canadian, uh, one of the largest ethanol manufacturers in, in, in the world and, and one of their longest uh, shareholders, I think it was 12 years, uh, maybe a 16% stake or something like that, uh, objected to a uh, imminent decision. They were going to build a, a huge new plant, ethanol plant in Louisiana at a huge cost. They're going to borrow a substantial portion of the development price, and they, they were going to do this alone. They didn't, they didn't have a partner. Uh, and this quality shareholder didn't think that was a, a prudent approach. A lot of leverage, a lot of risk. Why not get a partner? Why, why? Let's 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 think this through. And the board told the told the shareholder to sell. Said, Look, this is what we're going to do. And so said, yeah, I, I think it was a sixteen percent position or something like that. It would it would have taken. You can't just sell that tomorrow. Um, the, the float won't support it. The, the, it it's just chaotic. So they went hostile in that sense. They they uh, they tried. They exhausted all possible discussions, and finally announced a slate of directors for the next annual meeting. Four four directors, um, and that got the board's attention. They eventually settled, as most of these things do, uh, with, with one or two of the slate on the board, and they they did a whole review of the investment and 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 so on. And eventually reached reached some sort of com accommodation. Yeah, so I mean, I think that quality shareholders have different temperaments. They're, they're you know, they they don't. This is not a one of a kind thing. Again, the, the the core definitional elements are long horizons, that is long holding periods, long empirically long average holding periods, and and relatively high portfolio concentrations. That is, their their active share is is large, above ninety percent or something like that. And you can define these things in, in different ways. But beyond that, temperaments vary, and some are very highly diplomatic, like Warren, and, and others are a little more willing to be public, like Dan Loeb or, or Bill Ackman. And, uh, and uh, so I, I, th I think that the, every shareholder, every intelligent shareholder knows that there will be times when management needs a tap on the shoulder <laughs> or a board is, is, is supine and needs, needs awakening. And... Um, and I think you know, people will pursue that need or make that tap, you know, in, in different ways, uh, but wouldn't that, that wouldn't necessarily make them, um, you know, knock them out of the quality category. Much of the book is about the action that management can take to attract quality shareholders and the advantages of having quality shareholders uh, on your register. 
Are there any advantages to being a quality shareholder and what are they perhaps? Yes, you know, this is an ongoing research project of which the book is a, a significant part. So the, the broader research project investigates the performance of quality shareholders as well as portfolios of high, um, high density uh, quality shareholder companies. And what we, we see on both sides is outperformance. And let me just break that down a little bit and, and, and adds, hastily add some qualifications. On the investor side, as your listeners undoubtedly know, and as, as you know, a, a raging debate contests whether any active strategy can systematically outperform a passive strategy. The active passive debate, uh, it's been going on for since index funds were uh, proliferated in, in the late 80s or 90s and uh, has uh, a lot of empirical scholarly work around it and, and also more uh, disputatious uh, you know, fights among different uh, investors out there and uh, even a bet, a famous bet that Warren Buffett made against Ted Seides. Um, and, uh, and I think the, the, the general evidence may, may, may seem to suggest that the passives won that there, there is no uh, active strategy that can be proven systematically to have a propensity to outperform. But there's a huge caveat to that, which is the strategy of the quality shareholder and, and work by Martin Kramers in particular from the University of Notre Dame and, and others following the approach uh, demonstrates that a strategy of patient-focused investing can systematically outperform. And the theory, I mean, I think it's sort of a logical theory that if, if you're quite careful in, in your selections, you've got a rigorous approach to not only financial analytics, valuation and so on, as a value investor might, uh, but also an appreciation of characteristics that signal uh, competitive advantages, durable moats, um, a, a conviction that uh, is, is logically appealing to a long-term investor by uh, it might be that if you pick seven or nine or 14 of those, rather than a thousand off the S&P, then you might outperform. And, and, and so there, there is empirical academic evidence that suggests that this strategy, a quality shareholder strategy, uh, has the uh, capacity for systematic outperformance. It's not a guarantee. You, you, you still, uh, you could, you could use the filter such as this uh, and then still come up with, uh, with uh, errors selection problems and so on. So, but, but there is a, a, an intellectual academic case that this, uh, this methodology, this approach does have this capacity. So that's on the, on the investor side. And then and you look down investor list, you look down the list of investors in, that I identify as um, high on the quality shareholder list, they've, they've, they've got strong such records, including you, <laughs> I, should, I should say. Um, and then on the other side, on the company side, what we did in, in the research that's beyond the book, but it's available on, online, you search for, for my name uh, in the research, I can give it to you later, but uh, there, it's, it's called the research on the quality shareholder initiative. And what we did in there is um, we, we ranked 2,070 uh, companies, I, I think it's U.S., there may be some Canadians in there um, by the um, their propensity to attract high quality shareholders and high density, and then just did a, an experiment. Imagined a portfolio of the top 60 and a portfolio of the bottom 60, 
over the prior five years. And the top 50 significantly outperformed, I think by 200 basis points, a full uh, two uh, percentage points outperformance. Uh, and then within that 60, the overwhelming portion out, had outperformed. There were, there were some laggards, but it was a significant um, outperformance. And, and so uh, it's one data point, it's one study, it's one metric, but it's a, it's a reasonable basis. And again, lots of reasonable basis for believing that the companies that attract quality shareholders may well outperform. We don't make any assertions about causation. I don't have a claim that says that if you attract quality shareholders, you do better, or if you do better, you attract quality shareholders. But I think, I think there are some, what we then do with the data is we go around and try to figure out, well, why do these companies tend to attract these, these holders? And so we looked at, we looked at 40 different practices companies might or might not follow to see if there's any correlation, such as in some of the examples that we looked at are uh, director ownership of the stock, uh, attendance at shareholder meetings, uh, rankings of the clarity and candor of shareholder letters, uh, degree of sophistication and achievement around capital allocation, and a bunch of others. We, we've looked at about 40. Uh, and, and then, then we, and we, we see correlations among the ones I've, I've just mentioned. Um, and we incidentally, we also find some interesting practices where there's no correlation. And this includes staggered boards, and dual class stock, two hot button issues in the governance world that our evidence shows that there's no correlation. So company with or without either of these things doesn't have a higher or lower uh, density of quality shareholders, it's just a random distribution. And our inference from that is these are not something, these are not policy practices that quality shareholders rank as always good or always bad. They take each one on a case by case basis. For some companies, a staggered board is a terrible idea. For others, it's it's quite productive and, and useful. So we get into some of that in the book. Um, so uh, we then um, make some inferences around some of these examples about causation. I, I don't want to push this too hard, but I'll, I'll just give you one example where we found that companies whose board has higher levels of director ownership in the stock tend to attract higher levels of quality shareholders. And again, I don't want to insist on causation, but here, here's at least a story about it. Well, these directors are probably acting much more like venture capitalists. That is, they're actually helping develop and implement strategy. A conventional board member today will very often instead be there to promote uh, compliance and assure the, uh, the auditing is, uh, is fair and to uh, conduct uh, governance uh, surveys or check the, the, the CEO's um, uh, decision-making and so on. But, but a, a director that who's, who has a significant uh, part of her net worth in the company may do more, uh, may, may really try to engage with the CEO with strategy. You know, how are we allocating capital? What's our hurdle rate? Should it differ? For larger small acquisitions, <laughs> you know, really get in there and do what what venture capitalists do, which is really, uh, it's, it's not telling the CEO what to do, but coaching, and and nurturing and and really caring about the um, return on invested capital, let's say. And so that's our hypothesis. So our, our thought was, you know, if a, a quality shareholder seeing that kind of board is is, is very likely to to be attracted to it, and a and a director who has that kind of stake is very likely to have that, that additional commitment. 
Uh, and so it's it's not merely a, a correlation. It's something quality shareholders are looking for and, and something that if a company does it, will attract them. Uh, that's a thesis. And again, I don't want to push it too hard, but I think that that's kind of what we're doing when we look around and see what practices tend to correlate. And and, uh, and uh, so, you know, the reader will have to decide for herself, but we're, we're trying to keep the research up to date on the, on the internet so that people can follow along. You, you've had a long uh, interest in Berkshire and Buffett, and you're, you're an academic, you're a professor. How, how do you characterize your body of research or your research focus? Yeah, it's at the intersection of investing and management and uh, sort of a Venn diagram there, I guess, in a way. And then it's the, the other, uh, maybe the horizontal and the vertical is, the, the, is governance. That's the Venn diagram around governance. So it's business and law. So that, that sweet spot right, right there in the center is really where Warren has been living his life. It, um, he, since, he, he, since he started writing his letters, he's thought very hard about how to be a good investor and how to be a good manager. And you mentioned earlier that Berkshire Hathaway is both a quality shareholder of other companies and, one, and attracts quality shareholders to it. That's because Warren is, a, is ultimately both an investor and a manager. And so it's, it's neat to study him because you see both parts of that equation. And, you know, a lot of companies that the CEO doesn't really have the investor experience or the investor viewpoint, or hard, harder for that person to, to get what I'm talking about or to understand things from the shareholder side. And likewise, there are a lot of investors who's never, who've never managed a company. Uh, and it may be harder for them to appreciate the challenges. So it's, it's really neat to illuminate that, that intersection. And, and so that's an important part of what attracts me to Berkshire and, and there are other companies like that, especially in the, insur the insurance sector. You'll find more um, companies that succeed in attracting quality shareholders in the insurance sector than any other, and it's partly because those managers are also investors. Right? They have enormous amounts of float, typically, that they have to invest in a portfolio, typically diverse, particularly one that includes bonds, but also equities. And so, so that intersection is between investing and management, very interesting to me. And then the governance piece, I'm a law professor by background, but focus on on business and, and um, governance and what boards do, how they can do it better, uh, you know, overseeing companies and that sort of thing. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about um, this relationship. And, and I've got uh, well-formed views around what I think the ideal mix is. And to, to shorten, shorten it for you, I, I think that it's much more, law does a a better service to society when it simply creates lots of flexibility, some some guardrails and some boundaries, and then lets individuals make decisions within that. And that's especially true, I think, in corporate governance. And so, I, I'm skeptical of of of, of, um, uh, of very specific rules that require every board to do this, that, and the other thing. And that would be, you know, say, not allowing a staggered board, not allowing dual class stock, requiring a certain number of directors or a certain committee type and, uh, or a certain balance of gender or balance of race or separating the CEO and, and, and uh, board chair. I'm, I'm sure your readers are familiar with the list of 
topics where uh, there are some governance devotees who believe there is only one right way to do it, and others, and I'm in this other group, who, who believes that there, there are many different approaches and that the right one will be will vary by company. And, and I'm so I'm very interested in that. So my, that's the two Venn diagrams, <laughs> if you like. There used to be the, this principle of business judgment decisions sort of being outside the um, review of, of law courts. And it seems that as we've progressed over the last decade or so, they've become increasingly, you must check all of these boxes. And if anything, I think that that's sort of made the corporate governance a little bit worse because people are so focused on checking the boxes, then they're able to sort of sneak through a whole lot of other stuff where previously sort of you had to take it in its totality and look at what they were seeking to achieve. Do you, do you see any, any of that? Do you see, does that, do you, is that a fair characterization? Do you think? I'm, I'm troubled by the, uh, th thank you very much. And I, I, um, I would uh, make this observation that I think that the business judgment rule, which is what you that first described uh, is a, uh, a doctrine in law courts of, of deference. So that a judge asked to, to, to evaluate or review a board of directors decision about dividend policy or, or a divestiture or a spinoff or so or a tracking stock or uh, whether this person should be hired or fired. Those business decisions have classically be seen, been seen as outside the competence of a lawyer, of a judge, and rightly so, because it's those are quintessential business decisions. They must be made in real time with lots of contending pressures. And so it's best to have those decided in a boardroom rather than a courtroom. And so judges for hundreds of years, from England to Australia and India to Israel and the US and Canada have said, um, that's a business judgment and the rule is don't second guess it. Now, I, I think that that legal standard is, is still alive and well. I think what's happened, and this is where I think it's disturbing, because the second half of what you described is this proliferation of, of prescriptive governance, of saying you, you must do this, that, or the other thing, or you may not do this, that, or the other thing, includes the examples I gave. Staggered boards have declined precipitously. Separating the chairman and the CEO is a very popular thing. Uh, there's been enormous criticism against dual class and we can have a list and, and indeed, if you go out, now where is this coming from? It's, it's actually not so much coming from law courts. It's, it's coming mostly from the passive indexing community. And that includes the big investors there, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, and especially it includes the two big advisory firms, Institutional Shareholder Services and Glass Lewis all five of which are in effect either managing or, or, or examining uh, many, many, many thousands of companies, uh, tr trillions of dollars in assets deployed in tens of thousands of companies around the world. And it is, their business model, the, the three big indexers in particular, but then the, the clients of the two advisors, their business model is to exercise no judgment 
in investing that we we buy every stock in the basket we we do have to make sure we keep up with the basket and have a program to buy and sell as things change but we're not deciding berkshire is appealing at this price microsoft is um is is, is wobbly these days salesforce is the future they're not making judgments about that at all they're buying the s p 500 or the russell 3000 or the the, 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 the Dow or whatever it is. But then they're asked to vote on a whole bunch of things. They're, they're asked to vote at Berkshire's annual meeting and Microsoft's spinoff and, uh, and so on. Uh, and they, they simply lack, there's, there's no budget in their business model to evaluate these things. Now, when a big deal comes along, you know, Dell, Dell is selling off, you know, Dell is going private. Well, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll put a few people on that deal and look and see the economics are we receiving a good price should we report this should we support this 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 going private but for most things they they cannot possibly study they, they, is the staggered board good at boeing uh is the dual class stock good at the at um, the new york times company they, they they can't do that so just as a practical matter. And, and so that they've instead migrated to having, well, we've got generalized rules and rules and requirements that we have just, just determined to be the best practice. And so unless we have some contrary evidence, that's how we will vote or we recommend our clients will vote. And so that's, that's I think, the principal source of the, the rule orientation now around government. It's, it's a simple product of a business model. Now, in their defense, what they, they would counter me is say, well, no, we, we're not doing this simply because it's efficient or, or cost effective because we lack of a budget. We actually look at systematic empirical data about what is best. Uh, and we look at academic research. We look at your research. And we've seen that in general, uh, and we look at logic too as a general matter. So separating the chair and CEO function is smart, is, is natural because the board's job is to hire that CEO and then overseer. Right. And so you can't have the guy doing the same thing. So, so you know, they'll have an argument that there's a logic and even an empirical basis for a lot of their assertions. I simply take a different view. And I, I think that they're, I, I'll agree this much. I'll say, look, you may have identified best practices, but that, that's, that means that they're best for some sizable cohort. Maybe it's a majority, it might even be three fourths. But it, it, it admits that it's not right for, for lots of them. There, there are plenty of companies, Bank of America, it's, it's far better off having Brighton Moynihan have both of those roles because it's, it's efficient, it's, it's useful to have the person in charge of the company also, also running the board and setting the agenda. Why? Well, in part because he's trustworthy and, and really has a good view of things, in part because the other directors are really strong. And they're not going to let him get away. They're, they're not supine uh, ornaments and, and fixtures. It's a good board. And that's how I would decide. I'd say, well, who is this person? And who are the other people there in that room? But it's not feasible for ISS to look at 10,000 companies and say, well, is this really Brian Moynihan here? Or are we looking at a, a, you know, at a monomaniacal nut? <laughs> you know, so... So I just, I think that's where it is, Toby. I think it's it's not so much that law, it's certainly not corporate law. Judges still regard their uh, bailiwick as law and not business. But it's it's ironic almost in a way that the governance gurus, the investor, large part of the investor community have decided to do something different. 
I mean, the, the law judges were basically saying, let a thousand flowers bloom. There may be lots of different good ways to do this. And we simply don't know. So we'll leave it up to the boards. And oddly enough, the governance community has uh, elected to impose a very specific, a fairly specific set of expectations or requirements in, in corporate life that the judges had the wisdom to say ought, ought to vary a lot more than it does. I think one of the difficulties with Glass-Lewis and ESS is that they almost always support incumbent, they always, always support the management, the incumbent management, and there's not much of a, um, I don't know how much consideration they give of the activist sort of um, role. And I, I've seen many instances where I thought that the activist was probably in the right and both ESS and Glass-Lewis, and it's a very heavy kind of stamp that they're able to put on these things. It's, it's like a third party has this disinterested third party who only has your best interest as a shareholder has reviewed this and they've decided that we're going to support management. But then I don't know how many, there are many small shareholders out there who rely on that advice almost exclusively without realizing that that's what they always do. Do you have any view on, on sort of why they behave that way? Is it it's sort of is it sort of uh, you know it's helpful to get the next job if you've if you've supported management well thanks it's a it's a serious problem and that is one of the one of the reasons potentially we we see conflicts of interest among the big indexers and and even among the pro, those proxy advisors that they will um, they're they're not they're not pure independent objective observers. They they have other relationships with companies or, or prospective relationships with companies that might be important to them, and and that may enter into their judgment. Now they will all respond to that criticism by saying we have very uh, thick walls between these different activities within our firm, and that, so that's not a problem. We've isolated that. But another problem is. Uh, and I'll, I'll add one, one statistical observation is that there has been a slight increased propensity of those indexers and, and the advisors to break with management. And so you're, you're right that historically there has been a, uh, you know, if you, you look at the voting outcomes in large numbers, there's been a tendency of the passives to support management and the actives to support uh, uh, proponents, uh, shareholders not just on activist campaigns, but on shareholder proposals around emissions or other, other sorts of things. So there has been that, that divide or that, that differing propensity. It's, it's starting to change a little bit. You're starting to see some, some indexers say, well, no, we're, we're, we're against this one, just, just ever so slightly. And I, I take that in partly to be a response to the criticism that you just referenced. It is a small part that I, I said that they're trying to increase their budgets to look at the big deals, to, to look at Dell going private or, or this or that merger. And, and, and when they sit down and analyze, they say, oh, wait a second, this is not, we're not gonna go along with this. But I've got a different idea. I, I'm thrilled to share it. I, I vetted, I put this out in the Market Watch home just a couple of weeks ago too. And because what I'd like to see is because right now, the way I've just described it is the, the indexers lack a sufficient budget to investigate all the, all the votes. And, and even if they have enough of a budget to get most of the important votes, there's still a lot of votes where they're, 
they're probably not rendering the optimal decision. They certainly lack the optimal information base. On, on the other hand, the active shareholders, especially my quality shareholders, but really even the, the day traders and the ARBs and so on, um, have the incentive to study and see, uh, especially the ARBs in a merger transaction, who you know buy buy the stock from the quality shareholders. Uh, and then get to vote on the merger. Those people are, are have the incentives to become informed and, and have the information set. And so there's at least a reasonable chance to suppose that the active share cohorts vote is a higher quality vote, let's say, than the indexers. At, at least a at least the possibility of this. And so what would if that's true, then what would be nice, is, is if the indexers could become aware of the, of, the, of the likely vote of the active cohorts before the indexers have to cast their vote. And indexers could ignore whatever the active investors think, uh, but it, would be, it could be helpful to them to say, well, here's our standard matrix and, and we have looked at, we've had one person look at this and we think, yes, but let's let's see what uh, Newberger Berman. Let's let's see what Tobias Carlyle uh, is is likely to do on this. Let's look at Fidelity or T Rowe Price or the other uh, famous uh, active shareholders who who try to look and study. And so we developed we patented a product actually. It's like just proxy plumbing in effect that would enable those active voters to release their intended vote before they have to. Cast that's a great idea yeah and just so and then so we we just have we just you know hook it up to there you know, we don't even need to be involved in just all those but we publish it you know here's what tobias and, and and we're not soliciting we're not doing anything so we don't have to be regulated or anything and the indexers don't have to they can ignore it they, they, well we don't really care because we've got our matrix or, or we made our judgment and, and we know what we're doing or they could say, well, gosh, that's really interesting. That, uh, and so we're hoping to create, you know, we've got the technology, we, we, we think we can do it. And uh, so and that, if any if re listeners are interested in just reading a little more again, you, my market watch column from perhaps around late early February or January has the, a little more of the details on that. That's a really simple, elegant solution to the problem. That's that's a great idea. We should implement that 100%. Thank you very much. Tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Larry, we're, we're coming up on time. Uh, if, uh, if folks want to follow along with what you're doing or find the book, would you uh, let them know how they can do that? Yeah, I think the best way to get access to everything I'm, I'm up to is um, the Quality Shareholder Initiative. I think if you put, put that phrase in a, a Google, boom, it'll, it'll come right up to my, my page that includes all the, all, the, all the research around this topic, links to the book and, and other materials, much, much of which is free. And, and, and a list of all the MarketWatch columns, incidentally, where I talk about those, these topics once a week. Lawrence Cunningham, thank you very much. Thank you very much.